Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. It's often tempting to think of speciation as unidirectional, a continual process of divergence only interrupted by extinction events. But over the past few decades, we've come to realise that this isn't entirely true. And in today's episode, we're going to hear about a curious case where speciation may have stopped and, perhaps, begun to reverse. As we hear from the lead author of the new heredity paper, recent integration between Taiga bingus and Tundra bingus results in a largely homogeneous landscape of genetic differentiation. It's a fascinating study that pushes against long-standing evolutionary ideas. So, first of all, welcome to the Heredity Podcast. Can you please just tell everybody listening who you are? Uh, yeah, my name is uh, Jent Ottenbergs. I'm uh, a researcher from uh, Belgium, but at the moment I'm working in the Netherlands as a lecturer for the Wageningen University. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And this paper kind of focuses on the hybridization of two maybe species of geese. And I guess we'll get to the maybe in a bit. But I understand that the story of this research really starts right back in your PhD. So I wonder if you could just tell us about the general background of this paper and your history with these geese. Yeah, sure. So it all starts in 2012 when I started my PhD uh, in Wageningen, so where I'm currently working. And my goal was to resolve the phylogeny of the geese, so figure out which pieces are related to each other, and also to know if there has been a lot of hybridization and then consequently introgression, so that means gene flow between species through hybridization. So that was the goal of my PhD. And for my PhD, I sequenced one genome per species, and this allowed me to achieve those goals. So I managed to reconstruct the phylogeny, find some introgression. But the problem was there was a lot of introgression. So I could say that there was gene flow, but I couldn't say between which species it happened. And that's a bit the background for uh, this study, because the two main questions I had after my PhD was uh, which species have been hybridizing and when did introgression happen? So the timing. Uh, and I decided to focus on uh, these two species, so taiga and tundra bingus. Um, because I managed to get some samples, because it's quite difficult to get samples from geese because they breed uh, in the high Arctic. So I managed to get the samples of these uh, bean geese, and um, that's how I delved into their evolutionary history to figure out uh, when they hybridized and how much gene flow there has been. Oh, fantastic. And I guess you were kind of mentioning there about these bean geese and the fact that it was kind of easier for you to get hold of these samples. But I wonder if there was sort of anything else that made them special and kind of why you chose to focus in on them. Uh, so for geese in general, it mostly has to do with the hybridization. Because if you look at birds, they hybridize quite a lot. So we've estimated that around 15% of species hybridize. And if you then zoom in on particular groups, you see that water birds, so ducks, geese, and swans, they hybridize most. And there has been a lot of research on uh, ducks hybridizing, but not so much on geese. So that was the main motivation of figuring out what's happening with the geese. And then why these bean geese? That has to do with the bean geese complex or the bean goose complex. So this is a complex that consists of taiga bingus, tundra bingus, and the pink-footed goose. And there's been a lot of debate whether they are all different species or subspecies or maybe just ecotypes. So that was another goal of the paper to really figure out if we look at these taiga and tundra bingus, are they actually different species or should we classify them as subspecies? No, fantastic. I have to say, I love their names. They're great. Although I did look at some pictures and I'm honestly not sure I could tell them apart. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very, very difficult to, to, to tell them apart in the field. So um, you were kind of mentioning there that um, there's a lot of integration going on here. And I wonder just for people who are listening who might not be necessarily familiar with it, why is this such an important scientific question to try and tackle? 
So the thing about introgression is that in the past, it was considered something detrimental for species, because what happens if two species hybridize and you get gene flow from one species into the other, they could merge into one species and you lose biodiversity, or you can have uh, locally adapted gene complexes that get broken up by this hybridization. So for a long time, people thought that hybridization was detrimental. Uh, but since we have uh, genomic data, we see that it can actually be beneficial. So you can get genes that are adaptive in a certain context to be exchanged between species. Uh, a very nice example um, is in mice, where there are two uh, species that hybridized, and uh, one gene that gives them resistance against um, a poison transferred from one species to the other, and they became resistant to this poison. Mm. So that's a very nice example of how uh, adaptive introgression, as we call it, uh, can happen. So that's why it's important to really figure out if there is introgression, is it detrimental for the species, or can it actually be beneficial in their evolutionary history? Oh, that sounds fascinating. And I guess that's a really good setup to then get into discussing exactly what you did in this study. So I understand that you had some pretty enviable genomic data, and then you conducted some what appear to be pretty cool analyses. So I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about what you actually did for this project. Yeah, so I can uh, quickly walk you through it because we started off quite simple. Um, so the data we had was whole genome sequences of nine taiga bingus and uh, nine tundra bingis. And so we started off quite simple by just looking at their population structure. So we did principal component analysis and admixture analysis just to see if we could separate uh, both species or if there was some indication that there is a mixing of genes between them. And this showed us that actually, if you look at the PCA, we did manage to find a difference between the two species. But if you then look at the variance that's explained by the different axes, that was quite low. Similarly, if we looked at the admixture plots, uh, we could separate them, but there were some indications that there was gene flow between them. So that's why we decided to look at the genomic landscape of differentiation. So what you do there is you take the genomes and you put them side by side, and then you uh, use a summary statistic. And for different windows across the genome, you calculate this uh, statistic. I think most people are familiar with FST, which indicates the genetic difference between two populations. But this is a relative measure. We also used uh, DXY, which is an absolute measure of divergence. And by looking at these statistics, we could see that the genomes were mostly the same, so very homogeneous, but there were a couple of uh, regions in the genome that were quite different. And this has been shown in uh, other bird species as well, that uh, you get these so-called islands of differentiation in the genome, where you have peaks in FST, uh, and these regions could have uh, regions or genes that are involved in reproductive isolation. So they're interesting to study in more detail. Mm, no, that sounds really interesting. And I guess um, you've kind of already covered some of them, but I wonder what your key findings here were, because I know you had some interesting stuff to do with divergence times and that kind of stuff as well. Yeah. So the main finding is, as I introduced in the beginning, that I wanted to know when they hybridized, so when the gene flow happened. So we did some demographic analysis using the software DADI, if some people are familiar with this. And during these analysis, we figured out that the most likely scenario is that these species split off about 2.5 million years ago. Then they went their own separate ways and they uh, met each other again about 60,000 years ago and then started hybridizing with a lot of gene flow as a consequence. So what we think that happened is that they were on their way to becoming different species, but because they started hybridizing again, they might be uh, on their way to merge us uh, into one species again. Oh, wow. No, that'd be interesting. How common do you think this might be more broadly for geese? Like, do you think this is a fairly typical situation or are these bean geese doing something unusual? 
so that's something I want to look at in the future, because for my PhD, I know that there has been a lot of gene flow and uh, introgression in the, the history of, of these geese. And mostly we actually see that species are quite distinct, so you can uh, tell them apart in the field. Uh, the bingis, to me, are quite special because I think that they're one of the exceptions where they might be merging into one species. Of course, we cannot look into the future and really predict this, but if you compare them to other geese, I think they are the, the main example of perhaps speciation in reverse. Mm, no, it's, it's a very interesting system. And I guess speciation in reverse is something that as biologists, until recently, we haven't been very comfortable with. So one thing I find really interesting about this study is that you are kind of going against a lot of what sort of traditionally we've thought about how evolution works. And it might open up quite a lot of questions about speciation, taxonomy, evolution. So I wonder what you think your broad message is in this paper, like beyond the bean goose, what is this paper telling us? So the thing I would highlight is this uh, idea of, I'm a bit reluctant to say speciation uh, in reverse, because then you imply that they were different species and are now merging. So I would say that they were in the process of becoming different species and that this process has now been reversed. Um, because if you look at a lot of the literature on speciation, often people see it as the speciation continuum, where you go from two populations that can hybridize all the way to complete reproductive isolation. And you get this feeling that this reproductive isolation is the goal of speciation, maybe even the goal of evolution of getting different species. But I think it's important to realize that this process can stop, for example, when you get a hybrid zone, but it can also reverse, as we show with uh, the bean geese. So I think we need to step away a bit from this idea that speciation always leads to complete reproductive isolation, but that there's a whole continuum in between. Mm, no, that feels like a very important message. And it also feels like it's kind of tying in with this or growing acceptance of hybrid speciation concepts that have kind of been emerging over the last decade or two. Actually, one thing you just touched uh, upon is this uh, hybrid speciation. Because in my PhD, I found some indications that another species called the red-breasted goose might be a hybrid species. Oh, wow. Um, it's something I want to look into in more detail because I'm actually not convinced that it is a hybrid species, but it, it would be very cool if it is one. But this actually relates to this idea of reticulation and uh, networks, because if you look at evolutionary trees, they're mostly depicted as bifurcations. Mm. So you get a split between two populations and it just uh, keeps expanding. But a lot of studies are now showing that there's a lot of introgression, hybrid speciation. So if you want to show this, it becomes more of a network where everything is connected. So I think also in that way, we might be going away from this phylogenetic tree uh, model and more towards phylogenetic networks. Yeah, definitely. I've I've also seen that in quite a few sort of contentious evolutionary relationships that as soon as you put it into a network framework, it makes a lot more sense. But I guess you also kind of mentioned there things that you want to do in the future. So I wonder if you could just tell us uh, sort of quickly the kinds of questions that you're planning on going on to study after this. So as I, I said, we found some regions in the genome that are quite uh, different between the species. And they might hold genes that are related to reproductive isolation. For example, in one of these regions, we found a gene related to sperm morphology. So there might be differences in sperm morphology that are keeping the species separate. And I actually just started a project to look at sperm morphology in geese to really know if there's a lot of variation and if this can explain the uh, hybrid dynamics that we see. But then if I go more into the genomics that I am still working on, so I will expand the study system to um, the whole bean goose complex. So that means it will be taiga bingus, tundra bingus, and the pink-footed goose. And I've been trying to figure out their evolutionary history. And I cannot give all the details yet, but one thing I can say is that it looks like it's also going to be a network there. 
Mm, fantastic. We will be sure to uh, look out for it when it comes out. And that's everything that I had to ask you. So thank you very much for joining us. And I wonder, just to finish, if you could remind us of your paper's title and also just tell us about your co-authors, because I know this was a sort of big collaborative project. Yeah. So uh, the paper is Recent Integration Between Taiga Bingus and Tundra Bingus Results in a Largely Homogeneous Landscape of Genetic Differentiation. And I worked on this project together with uh, Johanna Honka, Gerard Muskus, and uh, Hans Elligen. Mm, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for sharing your work with us. I hope people go and read it because it's, it's a truly fascinating read. Oh, thanks. Thanks to Yant. If you want to read his paper, you can find it on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash hdy. And if you want to hear more stories of people pushing against the evolutionary status quo, why not head over to the Genetics Unzip podcast with Dr. Kat Arney. In the latest episode of Genetics Unzipped, we take a look at the world of epigenetics, finding out if more than DNA passes on to the next generation, whether Darwin was wrong and Lamarck was right, and whether you really can pimp your genome by eating enough broccoli. Plus, we meet the Mickey Mouse mice, the result of a surprising experimental discovery that should make us rethink our ideas about heredity and ponder whether Darwin's incorrect idea about the mechanism of inheritance may have been closer to the truth than anyone realised. Genetics Unzipped is brought to you by the Genetics Society. Listen and download now from Genetics Unzipped or wherever you get your podcasts. Epigenetics is one of the most interesting emerging fields in genetics, and it's so new that it still sparks heated debate. Make sure you give it a listen. But that's us for today. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can subscribe to the Heredity Podcast on all good podcast platforms, and you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening. Now's the time for extraordinary award-winning box sets on Now TV. See every epic episode of Game of Thrones, both sides of the law in The Wire and why Chernobyl got everyone talking. Award-winning shows are ready and waiting with no contract on a Now TV entertainment pass. To start your seven-day free trial today, search Now TV. 18 plus new customers only. Auto renews at 8.99 unless cancelled. Terms apply.